morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verses 4 to 15. And that can be found on page 1082 of the Pew Bibles. I have told you this, so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. None of you ask me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes... He will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me, because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said, The Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Thanks, Graham, and uh, good morning, everyone. (laughs) Uh, Hey, listen, a couple of uh, bits of news stateside as um, you get your Bibles open or keep your Bibles open to John 16. Bruce, our senior minister, is in California where he, uh, international man of mystery as he is, will be preaching to the Americans across the next three days. You have to pray that they can understand what he is saying, <laughs> accent-wise. Uh, also want to pray for our sister Kelsey, who many of you will know, our women's minister, who is an American herself and has returned to America for a family holiday, but got very unwell on the way over and has been in hospital over there. I think she has returned home this morning. But we're going to pray for her um, before we pray for ourselves and get into this scripture so let's pray heavenly father please be with our brother bruce uh, as he preaches to the americans we pray that uh, they will not only understand his accent but be really encouraged by his words keep them safe as well and we pray for our sister kelsey that you might be with her and that you might be restoring her after this bout of vertigo uh, even though she's not responded um, to the medication as you'd expect and that you would be restoring her to full health and give her a, some sense of a holiday over there and please return her to us safe and well. And as we consider your scriptures, uh, help us to love you with all of our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Many of you will know that before um, Carolyn and I had children, we lived in London for about three and a half years. They were amongst the best years of our lives, not just because it was before children, but it was a bit of an adventure. You know, a good opportunity to combine work and travel before settling down. It was also hugely formative for us in our Christian life. And we made really great friends because, as those of you from other countries will know, when you live overseas, your friends really do become your family. 
And so when it was time for us to leave, it was a very sad day because we knew that we would not see these wonderful people every day. In fact, we might not see them ever again. And so there was some excitement about returning home to a new job and the prospect of having children. But we could not look upon the day that we left London as a good day. It was very sad. And so it's with surprise that I uh, read Jesus' words to his dismayed disciples there in John chapter 16, verse 7, where he says, Very truly I tell you, it's for your good that I'm going away. The disciples are distraught at the thought of their friend Jesus leaving them, which I understand from when I left my friends in England. I mean, it has so overwhelmed them that Jesus chides them for not asking about where he's going in verse 5. But how is it that he can possibly say to them, Actually, boys, you're going to be better off without me. It's for your good. Well, the answer is because Jesus' departure signals the arrival, the sending of the promised Holy Spirit. And that will be good for them. And indeed, this morning, that's good for us as well. And so to finish off that verse, verse 7, Very truly, I tell you, says Jesus, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the Advocate, that is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And so the sending of the Holy Spirit is going to occupy our thoughts for today and not for the first time in this part of John's gospel as we kind of eavesdrop into this very intimate conversation Jesus shares with his disciples this one last night before his execution. You might remember from a few weeks ago in John 14, Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would be with them forever. Indeed, he would live within them, quite literally taking up residence within their own spirits. So they would never be alone, but would always have the presence of God with them by his Holy Spirit. And what is true for those first disciples is also true for all of Jesus' followers down the ages. So that we too are never alone if we trust in Christ because his spirit, the spirit of truth, also resides in us. Now before I'm going on and getting to the meat of today's passage, I do want us just to pause to reflect upon the sheer unlikeliness that God would dwell among us and even within us by his Holy Spirit. It seems to me it is not a given that God would create us at all and give us life. We've got no entitlement to that. Nor is it a given that he would look upon us, his creatures, with the loving kindness with which God looks upon us. Nor could we assume that he would communicate to us, his little creatures, with words that we can understand, dumbing himself down to accommodate our severe limitations. It's further remarkable, rather than predictable, that God would send his eternal son to live among us, that is, the person of Jesus, and to share our life in the dust rather than the weighty splendors of heaven. Even further stunning that he would take our place, sacrificing his human life in the most painful and humiliating way possible so that God might reclaim relationship with us, stunning again that he would rise to new life to guarantee that we might too rise again. But even more than that, that God the Father, Christ the Son, in a joint task force, would send their Holy Spirit to reside among us and even within us, is shockingly gracious of him, it seems to me. Those of us who've been Christians for uh, some time, we might have understandably grown used to that idea. But if you pause 
for just a moment to reflect upon all that. It is shocking. It is startling. It is staggering in the best way possible. That God who breathed the cosmos into existence has sent his breath to be beside my breath. His spirit to live within my spirit. Why have you not fallen off your chairs? I take it it's because you're dumbfounded with that rather than bored with that idea. Now that's really... uh, just to recap what he's already said in uh, John 14. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we read that the, uh, the Holy Spirit helps us to live a godly life, putting to death the misdeeds of the body. Uh, we know that the Holy Spirit helps us to know God intimately as Father. The Holy Spirit helps us to pray when we're too weak to even know what to pray. The Holy Spirit gives different spiritual gifts to be used for the common good. Some of them miraculous and some of them apparently ordinary, although truly none of them are ordinary. He also generates holy living in us in the form of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. He himself is a seal or a sign upon our souls like a deposit which guarantees our future heavenly inheritance. And all of that is just a brief and incomplete survey of what the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the third member of the Godhead does for us. Brief and incomplete. But today our passage focuses on a different aspect of the Spirit's work among us. And I'd like to look at that from two angles. Firstly, the Spirit convicts the world of guilt. And secondly, the Spirit convinces us of truth. He both convicts the world of guilt and convinces us of truth truth now how can it be that it's good for the disciples that jesus is leaving the world well it's because when he sends the spirit which does depend on his departure the spirit convicts the world of guilt and we see that idea expressed in a kind of a dense section in verses 8 to 11 it's worth rereading in full so follow along with me in your bibles when he the holy spirit comes he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment about sin, because people don't believe in me, about righteousness, because I'm going to the Father, where you can see me no longer, and about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Pretty hefty section there, but the summary statement is there in verse 8. The spirit of truth will prove the world to be in the wrong, or as earlier versions put it, will convict the world of guilt in regards to sin and righteousness and judgment. Now that idea of proving or convicting is the idea of exposing shortcomings. It does sound a little nitpicky, a bit nasty for our modern tastes. And it's got that sort of uh, courtroom or legal flavour to it. But actually the word for convict or the word for prove has the, the, the meaning of showing someone their sin, usually with a view to gaining their repentance. And not in a legal sense, but in a deeply personal sense. So how does he, the Holy Spirit, do that? Well, the next three verses break down that summary statement in verse 8. We're going to attack them line by line. Friends, it's going to require you to concentrate. 
I'm going to ask you to love the Lord your God with all your mind for about the next seven minutes. Can we do this together? I'm thoroughly unconvinced. <laughs> Let's see how we go. Verse 9, where Jesus talks about the Spirit proving the world wrong in regards to sin. And he actually connects that, did you notice, to their unbelief in him. If the people of the world did believe in Jesus, of course they would believe in his statements about sin. And they would turn to him for repentance. Without the Spirit in work in, at work in them, they will not only not receive life, won't even know that they need life. That is, people cannot even perceive their need for Jesus without the work of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' time, they would rather kill him than believe in him. And so the Spirit exposes the, that underlying sin of persistent refusal to trust in Christ, despite his words and his works. So you can see this action of the Holy Spirit is gracious because it's designed to bring men and women to a recognition of their sin and their associated need for Jesus and then turn to him. Now that's straightforward enough, I think. Verse 10, let's keep going. He, the Spirit, convicts the world in regards to righteousness. And it means in the sense of revealing that the righteousness of the world is inadequate. Now haven't we seen this repeatedly in connection with the Jewish religion of Jesus' day? You think about the temple, right? It was the very, the very heart of Jewish worship, Jesus had to clear it and cleanse it. Pharisees, completely meticulous when it came to their keeping of the Sabbath, and yet they condemned Jesus because he brought life to a paralytic man and a blind man on the Sabbath. Just a few verses earlier than Graham read for us, verse 2, Jesus said, A time is coming when people will kill his followers and will think that is an act of righteousness. That is a service or an offering to God. That righteousness is way out of alignment and the Spirit's going to bring conviction about this. But if you look closely at verse 10, and I encourage you to do that, he connects this conviction to him going to the Father. In the same way that Jesus was able to show up the empty kind of pretense of worldly righteousness, when Jesus leaves to return to God, the Spirit is going to take over that important role. And importantly, he's going to do that through the witness of the apostles and indeed through our witness too. You know, friends, when we proclaim grace boldly, the Spirit convicts the world of the emptiness and the pretense of its own attempts at righteousness, of its self-righteousness, if you like. And the resurrection and the return to heaven is the ultimate indicator that God approves of Jesus' righteousness it's the final indicator that he rejects the self-righteousness of anyone who attempts to impress God, who attempts to honour God, who attempts to serve God by their own merits rather than by worshipping his son. And the spirit is going to drive that home. Verse 11, last mental chin up, here we go. The Holy Spirit proves the world wrong in regards to judgment because it has made a fundamentally inaccurate judgment or assessment of Jesus. The world judges by mere appearances, Jesus has already said. And wouldn't you say that the high point, the apex of its inaccurate judgment occurred when Jesus was hoisted up on the cross, condemned to die a criminal's death, though he had done no wrong. And yet this apparent defeat and humiliation is actually victory and glory, 
because it's the event by which the prince of the world, Satan himself, stands condemned and sin and death are conquered. And friends, the Spirit will drive this home too. So let me summarize this dense section. The Holy Spirit is going to convict men and women of the world of their sin, of their empty attempts at righteousness, and of their incorrect assessments of the Lord Jesus of which they are guilty. But it's a gracious conviction, and it's a personal conviction, whose chief aim is not to draw out a guilty verdict, but heartfelt repentance and turning to the Lord Jesus. Can I say for every single one of us in this room this morning who is a Christian person, the Holy Spirit has done that in our lives, hasn't he? And if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian here this morning, I wonder if he's doing that in your life today. Last December, I went on a, a long bike ride uh, and I injured my knee. <laughs> uh, when I say long, it was for a week and the longest day of the trip was 180 kilometres. I realised that's why they invented cars, really, wasn't it? And uh, towards the end of that day, everything, I mean everything, hurt. Uh, and actually, my right knee was never quite right again afterwards. It just got worse and worse. Uh, and then a few months ago, I turned for a wave just down here in South Stain, and I felt something tear inside, and then it really hurt. And I got scans, and uh, I would need surgery. My GP said to me, do you have an orthopaedic surgeon? And I remarked that I have a wife, and a, and a car, and a dog, I did not know that I should have an orthopaedic surgeon. But then everyone I spoke to suggested a different orthopaedic surgeon. Man, I had a list of about 20 of them. My mum even rings up and she says, you should go with this guy, he's really cheap. <laughs> I'm not shopping for a toaster, mum. Because <laughs> I was thinking, surely they're all the same, you know? Like, knees are pretty much all the same, I thought. But then I had two friends both of whom have worked in uh, medical devices and technology for years, and they said independently of each other, Scott, you're an idiot. They're not all the same. What were you thinking? Each of these gentlemen had sat in scores of operations, and they said, no, no, what you want is you want, you want the surgeon who is precise, who's very ordered, who doesn't need to go back over their work, who knows exactly what they're doing. Who wraps the whole thing up in 20 minutes. You don't want the one who keeps going over their work because they're unsure. Who cuts a little more than they really need to. Who takes an hour and a half for the same operation. So it was very helpful advice. Because I want the surgeon with the most care and precision working for me. And you know friends, I think that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth is just like that for us. You remember last week we read that as disciples of Jesus, we must testify to him, gently and respectfully, of course. But our words and our attempts would be shallow and unsuccessful were it not for the Holy Spirit's surgical skill in exposing and convicting the error of the world. Our arguments might be hollow, our testimony to Jesus might be trite, but there is a skilled operator at work, exposing, proving, convicting the people of the world of sin, of empty attempts at righteousness, and of incorrect assessments about the Lord Jesus. But always with the gracious aim of bringing people to humble recognition and their associated need for Jesus. We must testify to Jesus, but the Spirit who lives within us is also testifying to Him, exposing the world of sin and guilt so that it might turn back to Him. He is like the expert negotiator. 
the great closer of deals, the incisive prosecutor, the impact player who comes off the bench, the skilled surgeon who knows precisely what he's doing. He convicts the world of guilt, which means we can speak and testify with great confidence. Secondly, for today, the Spirit also convinces us of truth. He both convicts the world of guilt so that it turns to Christ, and then he convinces us of truth so that we remain in Christ. And we see that in the back half of our reading today, from verse 13, for example. Read along with me. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. The disciples, they're so overloaded with grief, overwhelmed, that Jesus knows he can't just keep loading them up with more data. But it doesn't matter. Because with the coming of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit will guide them into all truth. And in actual fact, it's going to work backwards and it's going to work forwards. It'll work backwards so that these disciples, soon to be installed as apostles, will be reminded of everything that Jesus taught them while he was with them. That's why we even have a document as breathtaking as John's gospel in the first place. But it also works in the forward sense as well, as the Spirit will tell them what is yet to come. So both forwards and backwards, the Spirit will guide them into all truth. Now as I was reading, researching, thinking about this idea of being convinced of truth, it occurred to me that you and I deal with this phenomenon almost every day, I suspect. Most days we have to weigh up what is true, what is lies, what is convincing, what is dubious. I wonder if you know that for the past 50 years, neuro-linguistic programming theory asserted that when people talk, the direction their eyes move reveals whether or not they're lying. Have you heard about this? Such useful information. You know, wish you knew it earlier. A glance up and to the left supposedly means a person is telling the truth, whereas a glance to the upper right signals deceit. Look left, telling the truth. Look up and right, lying. How useful is that? But apparently uh, actual research has debunked this conventional wisdom. <laughs> Not useful at all. As it turns out, you can't tell a liar by where they look because liars and truth-tellers look all over the place. But you can sniff out a liar by listening to what they say. Liars are more diligent in choosing their words. For example, liars often repeat questions back nearly verbatim in an effort to stall for time. Where was I last night? In natural conversation, people will sometimes repeat part of a question, where was I? But restating the entire question, where was I last night, is actually just unnecessary. It's an attempt to stall for more time. Also, liars who use the word never, I would never do that, are overcompensating when a simple no would suffice. Saying, I would never steal from you, is not the same as saying, I did not steal from you. And if you ever hear someone using a qualifying statement, well, the way I see it, or as far as I know, uh, is uh, maybe that's a, a way out, an attempt to bend the truth without being directly called on it. Now, I realise that's not an absolute indicator of deception, but it does raise suspicion, doesn't it, that a person's not being totally upfront with what they know. 
So if you want to convince someone of the truth, don't worry about your eyes. Don't repeat the question verbatim. Don't use words that overcompensate like never. And don't use qualifying statements, as far as I know. People are going to know that you're lying. And as it turns out, the Holy Spirit has an even better way of convincing us of the truth. And we see that in verses 13 to 15. He doesn't make anything up for himself. He only passes on what he hears from the Lord Jesus, who himself has taken it from God the Father. And that's why the Spirit is so convincing. It's because he's taking truth that belongs to the Father, which is shared with the Son, and then he makes it known to the disciples. He convinces us of God's truth. And really, friends, I've just given away the process by which he does that. Because these verses in John's Gospel primarily refer to those first disciples who became apostles. Uh, Think about it. The Holy Spirit cannot remind us of what Jesus taught us when he walked among us because he didn't walk among us, literally. We were born in the wrong place at the wrong time. But he was with the disciples. And so the way that we access the truth of which he speaks is not by ongoing fresh revelation. It's in a derivative or a secondary way, by hearing the proclamation and the writing of these very same disciples through the rest of the New Testament. Rather than us expecting fresh words all the time, when we believe Scripture, we are digesting words that belong to the Father, which have been shared with the Son, which have been taken by the Holy Spirit and then revealed to the disciples before ultimately being accessed by us as future disciples through their original testimony. If you want to think about it this way, every part of the New Testament is a red-letter part. And so I think this has a massive impact on what we do with Scripture. Some of us will have a tendency to wait around for God to speak, uh, whatever we mean by that, when we've already got a 1,000-page arsenal of God's speech at our very disposal. And so we should read that. And we should pray it back to God. And we should get on with living the Christian life rather than living in some kind of paralysis for Him to speak a fresh word to us on each and every occasion. Now, I'm not saying the Holy Spirit doesn't prompt us or prod us or convict us from time to time. But I'm just saying his normal way of speaking to us is through a very neatly packaged book, which, by the way, he co-authored. I wonder if another temptation that we have is to think of his word, parts of it at least, as a bit of a movable feast, a relative statement rather than the fixed words of God. Maybe just a perspective of that culture or that time, or just one way of seeing things from a range of ways of seeing things. So that if it doesn't mesh with our experience, if it doesn't mesh with our culture, we're free to reject it. What we have in the words of Scripture are the words of the Father, shared with the Son, taken by the Spirit, revealed to the disciples before being codified in Scripture. It should make us very, very reluctant to move beyond the plain meaning of the text, to reimagine the words, to reform them or reframe them, to resist them or even to outrightly reject them. But that is our exact temptation whenever culture or our own sense or attitude clashes with them. We want to reframe them. We want to resist them. We just plain want to reject them. Let's, for example, just think of uh, that one verse that I mentioned earlier. 
The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Then I have to look at my notes after the first four. (laughs) Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Love that verse. So beautiful. Until it requires me to love someone with whom I disagree vehemently. Until it requires us to be gentle rather than aggressive with our family members or our work colleagues or fellow motorists or our Christian friends and leaders. Faithfulness, it sounds so attractive until it means that we don't sleep with or live with our boyfriend or girlfriend before marrying them or, or until it means we need to work through great difficulties in marriage when that feels like a yoke around our neck. Self-control, it's so beautiful until five o'clock or, or at least five o'clock somewhere in the world when we can resume our evening drinking sessions again, night after night after night after night. Man, I reckon we need to check our Facebook um, feeds and Instagram posts and just work out if there's actually more posts about beer and wine than there are about Jesus. I mean, what, what does that communicate to our networks? That our real helper isn't actually the Holy Spirit? It's like Rosemount Estate or the Four Pines Brewery? Now, I've just been speaking to Christians there, by the way, and uh, very quickly worked through just, just a couple areas of Christian living from one verse. There'll be many other areas of Christian living in Scripture that we will be tempted to reframe or resist or just outrightly reject. But because the Spirit convinces us of the truth, we can believe those words with confidence. Do you know, it's not just areas of Christian living, but even points of doctrine too where the temptation will be to reframe, resist, reject. Would it surprise you that there are Christians and theologians who are redefining sin to mean anything that gets in the way of leading a flourishing life rather than sin meaning primarily a personal offence to the holiness of God? There are Christians and theologians redefining salvation to mean the liberation of any kind of oppression. Now, I am all for the liberating of oppression, but it's not the same as salvation. You know, there are Christians and theologians reimagining that a child of God is not somebody who has been adopted into God's family by trusting in his son, but is anyone who joins in the struggle against oppression, regardless of what they believe. Can you imagine that? Well, you don't need to. It's happening. And at any of these points, living, doctrine, whatever it is, we just need to stop and think this truth of Scripture is the personal transmission of data from the Father to the Son by the most skillful, surgical and incisive prosecutor ever known, the Holy Spirit. And inasmuch as we testify to the world with his great assistance, he testifies to our spirits, convincing us of truth. Our job is to hear it and to learn it, to obey it, to even love it, knowing that even when we battle to believe it and to live it out, it's for our good. And it brings glory to Jesus. And so as we finish up this morning, we thank God always for giving us his son. And yet today, perhaps strangely, surprisingly, we give thanks for Jesus' departure so that he could send his spirit until his work on earth is done. He convicts and he convinces so that we can testify and we can believe with great confidence. Amen and amen.
And I was hoping by this point in time the band would have picked up the cues, would have made their way up behind me. Here they are. <laughs> Excellent. Now, we're going to finish a little bit differently 